You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This weekend, a political milestone will take place at a Tex-Mex restaurant north of Denver. It's where the Unity Party will hold its annual convention, its first as an official party in the state. Just recently, it crossed an important threshold of a 1,000 registered voters. This party's motto is not left, not right, but forward something that may either resonate with you or feel totally impractical in this day and age. Bill Hammonds is the Unity Party's founder, and welcome to the program. Thank you. You actually started the party in 2004. Correct. It has some presence in more than 30 states. Uh, But before we dig into your motivations, how did you learn that it had qualified as an official minor party in Colorado? Well, as of uh, the beginning of... Uh, actually, as of May, we had 999 voters. Okay. We need we need a thousand registered voters to achieve minor party status, and I uh, actually had a friend or two over a weekend uh, tell me that they were uh, had checked the unity box on the voter registration form, and sent an email to the uh, Secretary of State's office, and so they got back to me the next morning. It's actually 1,002, and just like that, we're a minor party. 1,002. So it was those last uh, three folks who. There you go. Uh, brought you over the finish line. I want to say that there are 3.3 million active voters in Colorado. And uh, with a little more than a thousand members, the Unity Party makes up about 0.03% of that. Uh, but I do understand that the ranks grew quite a bit mm-hmm. in the last month's month of the 2016 election. Uh, why do you think that happened? The two-party system is dysfunctional, and I mean it, we've had this going on for decades now. The Reform Party had great success briefly in the 90s uh, just for that very reason, it's, and the two-party system has become only more dysfunctional since. And definitely this is a uh, result of the two-party system. We Our numbers grew, I think it was like 46 percent in the last – Eight days of uh, the November election, or you know, at least the last thirty-eight days. I mean, incredible increase that we hadn't seen before, and that goes over th- uh, the threshold. Though we are still talking about small numbers, relatively. Of course, there are other minor parties in Colorado that are also trying to gain purchase in this state. I think of the Libertarians, for mm-hmm. instance, the Greens. Um, why, why create a new minor party? Because we're centrist. Uh, we, we're not an ideological uh, party along the lines of the Libertarians or the Greens. You know, we're not like – you know, just like our motto says, we're not left, we're not uh, right or – we you know, we're more practical party in terms of what we believe in. Uh, you know, it's not to say that, uh, you know, we don't have uh, some very strong positions and some might even consider those radical. I don't consider them radical but we definitely have – we've had from the beginning a very consistent platform. And definitely uh, a lot of things appeal to a lot of people. Well, here are a few planks in your platform. Mm -hmm. Making health care expenses deductible. Mm -hmm. Replacing the income tax with a carbon tax. Term limits for politicians and for the Mm -hmm. judiciary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You say that, that centrism drives you. How do you decide if an issue is centrist? And, and I guess that's unifying? Well, we're not driven by ideology. I'm not driven by ideology. And we don't uh, – that platform is – I think we have 18 planks at this point. Uh, it was expanded at our last uh, national party meeting last year. And you know, it's not like we sit down and say you know, we're centrist and here's – how do we shoehorn our platform into – that ideology and know it's more you know, what is practical, what uh, you know, what do we honestly believe needs to happen. 
That's what's of course, what, one, one person's practical is another person's impractical. Correct. Uh, I don't know. Let's dig into the carbon tax, mm-hmm. for instance. How did you come to that plank in the platform? Well, I, for one, believe that global warming is real and that is uh, man-made and that we need to do something about it. It is perhaps the biggest issue of our time. And one thing you can do, you know, traditional America, if you want people to do less of something, you tax it. Plain and simple. And currently we have income tax. Essentially, we're taxing people for paying food on their families' tables. Why not have a carbon tax raises the same revenue and discourages a very destructive behavior? The Unity Party's website proposes changing the voting age to Mm -hmm. 16. Correct. Why do you think that's important? Get some fresh blood into the political system. Uh, You look at our voter numbers, our registrations, they do tend to skew very young. Young voters tend to be more open to third parties and so on. And that, that is, if you look at the ranks of the Unity Party now, it's younger voters. Correct. Yeah, definitely the, I believe it's 18 to 24 demographic were very strong, uh, relatively speaking. But also, more importantly, young voters, I mean, if you're old enough to drive, just my own personal opinion, a lot of uh, my fellow party members agree with me. If you're old enough to drive, you're old enough to vote and participate. Oh, interesting, right. And 16, of course, of course, is that threshold. Correct. If you can operate a motor vehicle, you think you should be able to vote. Well, yes, more or less, yes. Okay. Is this a place where a Republican and a Democrat can come together? Is it a place for someone who has never seen themselves as a partisan? Tell us more about the Unity Party voter. You say they're, they tend to be younger. What else? Well, definitely the latter. We are open to – well, first of all, we are open to members of the Republican Democratic parties joining us, uh, you know, people who have perhaps held office before and have been active with other parties. But we're also open to people – I'd say uh, more open to people who have never participated participate in politics before. The only requirement is that they have checked that unity box affiliated with us as a unity party voter. And this is by law uh, before January 1st of this coming year to uh, participate in the 2018 election. Let me say that you are your party's candidate for governor. Correct. uh, But others could emerge and you say you're open to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, you ran for U.S. Senate on the unity party ticket, Mm -hmm. got more than 9,000 votes, I think. Correct. Uh, You have also run for Congress twice. And in the past, you have had to petition to get on the ballot. Now... I guess you'll have a formal nomination process as an official minor party. Well, we always had a formal nomination process. The only difference before was that at our uh, at our meeting, the those who were nominated as the candidates, as my uh, was nominated twice for U.S. Senate, uh, had still had to go out and gather. In the case of the U.S. Senate candidate, myself, gather a thousand voter signatures, you know, farmers markets, what have you, uh-huh. uh, over six to eight week period. Now we don't have to do that anymore. You are automatically this on the automatically ballot. onto the ballot mm-hmm. on the November ballot. You filled out the CPR News voter guide when you ran mm-hmm. for U.S. Senate in the fall. And you wrote that you do not support a path to citizenship for those who came into the country illegally. Correct. Tell me about that. Is that a middle of the road position? Well, let me, let me be clear. There is a place for immigration in this country. It was has been. We're a nation of immigrants. And the but to reward citizenship, uh, reward and legal act with citizenship is just it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have immigration, legal immigration, and controlled immigration. There are people here who uh, immigrants here are willing to do jobs that, frankly, Americans are no longer willing to do. There's a place for them in our economy, in our country. I just don't. The, it's just the principle of rewarding an illegal act with citizenship. That just doesn't make sense. What do you do then with those who are here illegally? 
essentially allow them to remain here legally and bring it all into the light, let them work, let them pay taxes, of course, let them obey the law, which vast majority are already doing anyways. Uh, let me be very clear. I'm not anti-immigrants. I just – the we I, I do have deep respect for the law, for the constitution and we should not be, again, rewarding a legal act with citizenship. Bill Hammonds is my guest of Thornton. He's the founder and chairman of the Unity Party, which just recently qualified as an official minor party in Colorado. And uh, I mentioned that your party convention, at least the state one, takes place this weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's held at a Tex-Mex restaurant Correct. in Westminster called Chewy's. Um, is, is this a quixotic Adventure? Do you think this is kind of tilting at windmills here? Not at all. I mean, I started off, uh, you know, just the with a website and a few uh, carryovers from a presidential campaign back what uh, thirteen years ago. Now, now we're in thirty-seven states, and now we're an official party. The only the second one, second new party in forty years. The only the the first new party in twenty years here in the state of Colorado. Uh, I you know, I think we're definitely on the right track. Hmm. How do you plan to grow the party? Well, it definitely helps that we are now we now have official party status. I mean, people go to the Secretary of State's website, and you know, no longer is the question, well, what's a qualified political organization? Which you know, the answer was, well, you know, half party. We're a full party. Yeah, that now. was your old designation. That was our old designation, correct? Uh-huh. And it's quite possible. I, you know, as you uh, uh, mentioned before, I am open to. Right now, I am the only gubernatorial candidate for the Unity Party of Colorado, but I am open to challengers. I'm uh, fully willing to admit that there perhaps there are other can, uh, good Unity Party gubernatorial candidates out there. But currently, I am the only uh, candidate for governor uh, for the party, and it is quite possible that I will be you know number three on the ballots at the top of the uh, ballot in 2018, and that alone will be uh, quite good publicity. You know, things like that resulting from a new party status. Right. This in and of itself raises the profile. Correct. I, I want to wrap up with one issue that I think has been big for the Unity Party all along, which is the question of gerrymandering, how mm-hmm. districts are drawn. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in many ways, that too uh, can lead to f- political fracturing. Uh, do, do you want to share just a few words on that before we go? Yeah, well, a new uh, position that I just put on my billsrunning.com website. Uh, what I propose is a, and we are uh, definitely anti gerrymandering. The drawing of congressional districts along part, well, any electoral district along partisan lines that needs to be outlawed. And here in Colorado, one thing we can do is what I call a Denver Seven plan, is divide the state of Colorado up into seven districts, each comprising a uh, portion of the city of Denver, stretching to. Uh, a state border, so therefore includes not only Denverites but a lot of other uh, citizens of Colorado. I see. So you don't get these kind of u- uber rural and uber urban exactly. districts. And you get so you get, for example, members of Congress who have to appeal to people from all walks of life. Interesting. Bill, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bill Hammonds of Thornton is the founder and chairman of the Unity Party, which has just qualified as an official minor party in Colorado. Its annual convention is in Westminster Saturday.
The grisly murder of a family in Aurora in 1984 partly inspired a new novel. Author Matthew Sullivan remembers the case vividly. He was a kid in Aurora when it happened. His literary debut is called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore, and the backdrop is essentially the tattered cover bookstore in Denver's lower downtown, where Sullivan worked for four years. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When you started this book, what did you have in mind first? Your time at the Tattered or the murder in Aurora? Uh, so it really began with the setting. Um, the Tattered cover itself just had such a transformative impact on my life. I understand you met your wife there. I met my wife at the Tattered cover. Yeah, it was early on there. Um, I was working a shift in the kids section and I looked across the the scattered books and the smell of dirty diapers was in the air. And essentially that was our future. So we, we started dating. Oh, so you're a parent. We are parents. So yeah, that, we have. That you met in the kids section of the tattered is like prescient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really um, meeting Libby there was a probably the most significant thing that happened to me in my time there, uh, quite obviously. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you start with the idea of that storied bookstore in Lodo, which, mm-hmm. you know, has just got like, rich tones of wood everywhere and that mm-hmm. fantastic green carpets. Yeah. And you yeah. think, I want to set a book there. Yeah. And then I guess, what? You you want to include a grisly murder as well. It's it's not the, the bearing I would necessarily go with. Yeah, yeah. So what happened there was I I really was focusing on the bookstore setting itself and a, and a bookseller named Lydia and kind of began with her as a character and as I started to work on her and began to assemble a mystery that that had to do with books and uh, specifically um, an incident that happened in the bookstore, I found myself kind of reaching back to something that happened when I was a kid, when I was 13 years old. And for whatever reason, um, that incident kind of inserted itself into Lydia's experience and became this aspect of, of her character that essentially defined her as a character and really helped to define the shape of the mystery. Yes, it's part of her history. And what do you remember about this murder in Aurora? Um, well, it it was shocking. Uh, it happened in January of 1984. Um, the, the Bennett family, uh, anybody who was living in Colorado at the time, probably uh, recalls it. Essentially, a man with a hammer went into this house, uh, a family's home, and murdered three of the family members and left one um, terribly wounded. And it happened at a time in my life when I was kind of straddling the place between adulthood and childhood, eighth grade. And it was the first incident that really kind of, uh, I feel like, took me out of childhood and awakened me to some really um, terrifying things that I had not, not that I was naive um, or that I had no uh, exposure to violence or shocking things before that, but just in terms of the place that I was in my life, it really was scary. It terrified me and it terrified my whole family and it terrified all of our neighbors. And I think that anybody who was in Aurora or Denver at the time um, felt that shock and, and horror as well. I can so identify with that. I remember being a kid in L.A. when the Night Stalker was Mm -hmm. prowling. And it it really does 
have a way of pushing um, fast forward on childhood somehow. You just like the world is not as safe as your parents have made it out to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my one of my siblings, my sister would talk about how she couldn't sleep without having the sheets pulled up over her head. And I, I talked to people, um, family friends at the time, who said, you know, they never locked their door before that. And afterwards, they began locking their door. And of course, part of the thing that was so horrific about it was not just the incident itself, but that the guy got away with it. Um, this was over 30 years ago, and there's still a detective in the Aurora Police Department, Steve Connor, who's actively um, pursuing this case. But here we are 30 years later, and the guy was never caught. And I think that that aspect, that kind of open-ended aspect, maybe increased the impact yeah. on, on a lot of us. Yeah, I'll, I'll say without giving too much away that um, the loose ends are a bit more tied up by the end of your book yeah, uh, about, yeah. about who did this. But, you know, let's not dwell too much on it yeah, because it's, it's not by any means the sole thread in your book. Right. Um, I'd like to talk about the setting yeah. of the tattered cover. You're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way. I'm speaking with author Matthew Sullivan. He worked for four years, met his wife at the tattered cover bookstore in Denver, and he's written a book now that's essentially based on his experiences. They're called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. And you write a lot about the, the kinds of folks who populate bookstores the customers. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess they, they really fit into like some archetypes uh, that you have observed in, in the years that you worked there. Sure, sure. So while I was working on this book, I spent a lot of time just kind of immersed in my memories and my experiences within the bookstore. And I also had worked at a bookstore in Boston after I left Tattered Cover for a couple of years. So there, a lot of these things kind of blended together. Mm. But the population of people who, who go into a bookstore 99% of the time um, are just wonderful people who are making a choice to step into a store to support a local business, to um, kind of open themselves up to discovering something new. But there are the customers who kind of stand out who are the anomalies. And these are like the cliche version of this is the, the customer who comes up to the counter and says, you know, I'm looking for this book and it's, it's got a bluish, orangish, reddish cover and I don't remember the author <laughs> or the title. <laughs> you know. And uh, so that's kind of the cliche, you know, anomaly of the of the the, the customer archetype. But there are how, wait, as well. how often are you able to track down the book that they describe with no title or author? You know, before the internet, it was a little bit more challenging. Uh -huh. But also before the internet, uh, you would interact with other people and just ask around, and and it was surprising. I would say most of the time uh, there was somebody who says, "Oh yeah." Bluish, orangish cover. I know that book. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you do describe some of these um, more colorful characters in the book. Is I think book frogs. Yeah, yeah, the book frogs. And this is a this is really through um, Lydia's point of view and and just getting into her character. Again, she's the protagonist and a bookseller at and the Bright seller. Ideas Bookstore. Yeah, exactly. From her perspective, this is a group of people who come into the store not so much as customers but looking for a sanctuary, looking for a place to spend some time. And for Lydia, this is exactly what the, the role that the bookstore serves for her. She, as a character, had, had you know, of course, experienced something horrific as a child. And then um, as an adult, she finally begins to find her feet again and find some peace and solace in the bookstore setting. And so when she looks out, you know, in, in the store and the place where she's spending all of this time and sees people who kind of have arrived in the store and are hanging out and playing chess and kind of, 
you know, lurking around the store um, and reading and maybe not the typical customer, uh, it, it invokes in her a great sense of empathy and um she's and kind of like part social worker in some ways she really she, is she feels for these folks yeah and again i think that comes back to her own personal experience because the bookstore and books have played such a pivotal role in her life and in, in providing some kind of peace for her that that she wants to offer that to others as well especially the people who are maybe a little bit more marginalized or downtrodden you have a real knack for capturing the essence of a character in just a few lines. So is is it Lydia's boyfriend or her husband? I'm not sure if they're uh, married. Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. You write that he's the guy who would rather take a part of television than eat nachos in front of it. Right. <laughs> um, and of a staffer at the bookstore, you write, he walked around like a Muppet, but always looked sad. Right. right. How do these kinds of descriptions come about? Uh, through a lot of rewriting. Okay. <laughs> you know? That was not on the first take? The no. First try. Uh, sometimes I'm kind you, of relieved to know that. Right. No, sometimes you hit a gem right away, but most of the time it's just a lot of revision and a lot of rewriting and really trying to, and especially in a mystery when pacing is so important and you really want to get readers turning the pages and moving forward, you can't linger too long. So you really, for me anyway, I try to kind of boil it down to the little gems that are going to capture a person's personality and individual individuality and make them stand out as something like not a stereotype or a cliche. Yeah. So in fewer than 10 words, walked around like a Muppet, but always looked sad. I can just picture the gait of this character. Yeah. Yeah. Writing a female protagonist, do, mm-hmm. is there is there a lot of thought that goes into like what gender a main character is going to be? Not at all. You know, this was really a practical choice for me. I, I had in my writing up until this point, I had focused a lot on on characters who were kind of alter egos of myself. And so when I sat down at, with a blank page for this one. I consciously said I'm not going to write some kind of alter ego story Hmm. and Lydia emerged. And I think once a character emerges, when you spend time – and I do. I spend a lot of time just kind of thinking about them before and during the writing process. um, They begin to kind of take on a life of their own on the page. So I guess the gender aspect for me wasn't super standard or like a conscious choice of mine. It just kind of emerged as like, that's who I'm going to write about Hmm. because that's not one of these other alter egos. And really, she just kind of bloomed to life for me on the page. Um, have you – you're in town. You you live in Washington State I live now. in rural yeah. Washington, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're back in Denver. Have you been back to the Tattered yet and have you seen your book on the shelf there? I have not. Okay. I have not. I, I, I just got into town. Okay. So, so we're speaking to you before that experience. Right. Is that going to be kind of like fraught for you? Uh, you know, I have a lot of family in town and friends in town, so I'm back in Denver a lot. Uh-huh. And so I, I have gone into the Tattered Cover virtually every time that I'm in town, and so I go and stock up. But so your own book will presumably my, be there. Yeah, yeah. It It is definitely a uh, – uh, there's a synchronicity there of art imitating life, imitating art, and somehow that all <laughs> kind of merges together. But it, yeah, it's a fantastic experience. And, I, and I'm just really moved that the story that I was trying to tell made it this far to actually arrive on a shelf and that people are reading it and, and are interested in it. It's really um, humbling. Are you surprised by how dark the book turned out? Not particularly. No? You know, I'm, I'm interested in crime fiction. And, and I guess my approach has always been to kind of 
not shy away from those darker aspects of storytelling and trying to capture crime as it impacts real people. Even though these are characters, for me, this is not about plot as much as it is about the impact of crime on real human beings and trying to kind of capture that ripple effect. Uh, in terms of the darkness, the flip side of the darkness for me is attempting through other characters and through humor and through kind of uh, the setting, the glorious glorious bookstore setting of yeah, the, the tattered book, cover. The bookstore anchors it. It anchors the darkness in, in some light. It does. Uh, that was very conscious, just trying to kind of cast some balance there so that for every, you know, darker scene, there is at least something else that, that is hopeful and maybe even funny. Well, what what's next? Isn't that, the, that's, that's such a rude question, right? You've just finished a book. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go, give me more. Yeah. But, but what's next for you? On the writing front, uh, I'm working on another literary mystery novel. This one is set in a strange little small town in Washington State, and it's in the early stages. And we'll kind of see where it goes, but I'm excited to be immersed in it. You do that uh, as you teach as well. Yeah, I teach at a community college. That's kind of what got me out to the Northwest. Yeah. And uh, you teach, I, I, I gather, writing. I teach writing and mm -hmm. literature and film. Yep. Um, what advice do you have for a young writer who wants to be published? Uh, a couple of things. One is to tell the story that you want to tell. I think it's so important to be kind of true to the story and not think about the marketplace or other things mm. and also just to be persistent. It just takes persistence. Um, you're going to face a lot of rejection unless you are somebody who is not me and every other writer on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you have to be persistent. Okay. And, and you're living proof of that? In other words, you can tell them, I, the, you know, I papered the wall with rejection letters or Absolutely. something. Absolutely. Yeah. Papered the wall and the, the garage and the outside of the house and <laughs> everything else. <laughs> I understand that you talk to your students about uh, the evolving role of the victim. And, and maybe we can wrap up with that idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, what does that mean to you? So uh, originally in the mystery genre, the, the first detective story was written by Edgar Allan Poe in the 1840s, Murders of the Rue Morgue. And Poe established a pattern there with how the victim should be treated within the mystery genre that has more or less held true, especially into the you know past few decades or so. It started to change pretty dramatically. But that role was um, what's sometimes called the colorless victim. And this essentially is robbing the victim of their essential humanity and turning them into a plot device, not entirely because you see variations of it over time, but basically that if our attention focuses too much on the loss of life that, that is kind of inherent to most mystery fiction, yeah. we're not going to be focusing on the detective who is the protagonist in the story and, and that's where our attention should be drawn. And one of the things that's happened, um, especially in the past couple of decades and, and a lot right now, recently, some writers, and these are literary mystery writers, are kind of bucking that pattern. Um, and again, there are exceptions along the way, but by and large, it is a pattern. Hmm. And the I mean, it, it helps in this book that your victim survives, right? In other sure. words, it's, it's, it's more difficult to animate a corpse. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. You have to do that entirely through memory or others' memories. Right, right. And, and I guess the idea behind that, again, is to not treat um, the body – the body in the library as a plot device, mm. right? And instead to um, examine and try to invite readers to think of this as real human loss and, and examine its impact on 
on the story and the characters around it. So a lot of literary mystery writers like Tana French, Jess Walter, and Bryn Chancellor, uh, writers like these have recently been really immersing readers into the lives of the victim rather than kind of looking at the victim as a stepping stone in the plot that leads to a convenient but satisfying um, resolution. So again, like your main character, Lydia, is very close to this old murder. Right. She survives Mm -hmm. and – that means that that she can tell her own story. She can tell her own story. Can, right. can you can you do that? Can you tell a fuller story even if it is a body in the library? You can. Uh-huh. You can. But I guess, I guess it has to do with where you're shifting the reader's attention or where you're steering the reader's emotions. Is it possible though that that makes mystery too real? Yeah, and I think that or honest, too much of a bummer. Yeah, yeah, and I think that honestly, a lot of readers are kind of hungering for that. That hmm. they are looking for um, some mystery writers. Not everyone, because you turn to books for different reasons, right? But sometimes people want to read a a book that maybe is more realist and that um, examines the full humanity involved in storytelling and not just the kind of more convenient parts of that humanity. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Matthew Sullivan's debut novel is called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. Sullivan grew up in Aurora and worked for four years at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. You can read the first chapter at cprnews.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver is about to become the center of the culinary universe. This weekend, the city hosts Slow Food Nations. It's a global gathering of more than 10,000 chefs, farmers, foodies, and policymakers. Food celebrities like Alice Waters and Carlo Petrini will be there, and there will be plenty of things to eat. It is also a chance for activists to set the course for the local food movements. Richard McCarthy leads Slow Food USA, and he's here with Adam Schlegel, co-founder of Snooze AM Eatery and director of Eat Denver, a collective of locally owned independent restaurants. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank Pleasure you for to be having here. us here. Richard, can you introduce to, to us this term, slow food? I'm guessing it's the opposite of fast food, <laughs> but what, what is the idea capture? It is. The idea is that there is a global community of chefs and farmers and fishermen and eaters like me who think we can change the world through food and food that is good, that is clean, and that is fair. And that's a dramatic cultural shift from our kind of American self-loathing Protestant food is fuel. And what I see all over the country is that people are beginning to reinvent their sense of place and their taste of place and their sense of community through food. Okay, I get good, Mm -hmm. right? That's easy, good food. Uh, Just say a bit more about clean and especially that uh, term fair. Yeah. Well, with clean... Food that is not pumped with all that junk that you can't pronounce. So like simple whole grains, fruits and vegetables, uh, food as we recognize it, or more importantly, as our grandparents recognized food. And fair is that there should be dignity from field to fork uh, for the labor of those who produce the food as well as for those of us who purchase it. What does this look like on the ground or in the kitchen, as it were, Adam? I mean, how have you at Snooze and maybe other restaurants in the area, put those ideas into practice. You know, I think our, our culinary scene has really taken a, a revolution here over the past 10, even 15 years. 
And um, beforehand, I think we've always had almost a knock on on what we are bringing to the culinary scene. And, and you've really seen this revolution. And it's really started at this farm to table. And how do we have this true connection back to our farmers and our ranchers? And what does food really mean? So you've seen it in, in the proliferation of a number of the restaurants that pop up at the Union Station or, or the revolution that has created that farmer's market and brought there um, to snooze. And, and, you know, for us, it's truly been a revol- uh, an evolution in our food process and thought. You give me an example of a change in breakfast food. In breakfast food? Well, we actually started off using caged eggs. Uh, we really didn't actually know at the time what that net necessarily meant. And I remember going on a tour with my brother and our food buyer at the time and really going to a cage facility, an egg facility outside of Platteville, and then also seeing on the next instance and walking through a true cage-free instance. And, and that was, you know, that was a revolutionary moment for me and certainly for our, our restaurant of just saying, we, we have a tremendous responsibility with what we do as restaurateurs to make sure that what we provide our guests is is what is true to our values. Is this an elitist event? <laughs> no. I think there's nothing elitist about uh, school children having real food and being treated as humans rather than eating on the assembly line. And uh, our gathering is going to take place as a free festival in downtown Denver with uh, uh, workshops in Spanish and in English Um, for those who are deep into food, as well as for those who have just come to the table, families who are trying to figure out, what do I feed my kids? What is going on? How do I make responsible decisions? Yeah, give me an example of an event, uh, a symposium maybe, that you're looking forward to. I'm really excited uh, about Chef Michelle Nishan, who is the founder of Wholesome Wave that's fought for food stamps and farmers markets. He and uh, Jack, they were not always accepted at farmers markets. Farmer when when food stamps in 1996 went to electronic benefit transfer. Yeah, and basically uh, almost a debit card, like a debit card. Uh-huh. Well, they didn't think in Washington at USDA about what that means for farmers markets. Farmers markets are out in the open. We don't have landlines to swipe things. The technology hadn't caught up, and it was the in- inventiveness in civil society in the. 500% growth of farmers markets that created the momentum to begin to not only accept food stamps and farmers markets, but also to create incentives so that vulnerable consumers would be rewarded for purchasing fresh fruits and vegetables for their family by doubling their dollars. Mm. So, so you, you get more if you choose a farmer's and market. It, and it recognizes the risk involved for vulnerable consumers to make that shift to healthier food. And uh, by by re- reducing some of the financial risk. So Michelle Nishan and Jack Johnson will be doing a cooking contest for free in the, the streets of downtown Denver, Larimer Square, uh, for families, for kids to get excited about food. If we get excited about food, if we love food, we will eat better food, which is so much better than the angle of Food is fuel, and you must eat your better food, um, but not enjoy it. We we believe in the universal right to pleasure, huh. and that's why it's not an elitist thing. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a preview of this weekend's Slow Food Nations Festival taking place in Denver. Chefs, food lovers, activists from around the world will descend on the city. And uh, Adam Schlegel of Snooze, I understand one thing you're looking forward to is the Graniacs Block Party um, because it just seems like everyone today is is worried about whether 
grains, wheat, you know, are, are they good? Are they evil? Yeah. What's this grainy X block party? Well, I, you know, I've, I hold that same same uh, same question. I mean, this is my world, and, and <laughs> I live it in, and I'm still often confused on what should I eat and what is a good grain, and but there's nothing more gratifying than a great piece of bread or a well crafted beer. Uh, so I'm really excited about the Grainiacs, not only because you know Kelly Whitaker, who's the chef of Basta, and really helping drive a lot of this creativity. This is the restaurant in Boulder. This is the restaurant in Boulder. Um, but what this can actually bring to the, to the enlightenment of what should I be putting in my body that, you know, grains actually are not this overbearing carbohydrate, but actually can be this wonderful source of protein and, and redirection. And, and further, in, in looking for what we should be doing and could be doing more to enhance our agricultural system in Colorado, grains are, are really something that grow exceptionally well. Um, and that if we can really start to understand all of these diversities of grains out there and bring that process back, that there's tremendous benefit. Um, I remember doing a story years ago about Colorado being one of the largest millet growers and exporters sure. in the in the country. Yeah. And again, those are those are all the the opportunities that I think make this one of the most exciting weeks in, in food is that we're going to have this discussion. And it's not just to the choir of folks who often want to have this discussion, but we're bringing together world leaders, thought leaders and people that just want to come out and have a great meal and hopefully realize our potentials. Is this political, Richard McCarthy? Food is definitely political. But it's not political in a party political way. Food, Although it can be. Can it, it can be. No, and, and it, one's and it, view of food stamps, for instance, might be influenced by one's party. Correct. But you know what is happening through food is we're beginning to rekindle a social contract between urban and rural through food beginning to forge new relationships, new experiences, new shared history. And I think it's on those building blocks that we're beginning to forge a new political culture that is not traditional left or right. Boy, that wasn't borne out in the last election. It seems like the urban-rural divide is as, as wide as ever. And I think that's why we need to use food as a currency to build bridges, not only between urban and rural, but between the U.S. and Mexico, which is why Slow Food Mexico is going to be featured as one of our more important uh, uh, purveyors and exhibitors uh, over the weekend. And what I see all over the country is that while there may be this superstructure of political gridlock happening at the high level, at the grassroots, people are forging new social relationships and trust between uh, producer and consumer, between supply and demand through food. I want to note that this isn't going to be a one-off conference in Denver. I think it's going to be here indefinitely. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, that's uh, certainly the, the hope and plan. I think that's what got so many people in the, in the restaurant community to, to forge together. Um, the Terra Madre Festival, which takes place every other year in Italy. This is another big food festival. It's a food festival. It, it's on pretty much every restaurateur's bucket list of must-dos. And mm-hmm. so when Notion came down, Krista Roberts, the executive director for um, Slow Food here in Denver, started forging this, the alliance uh, of our restaurateurs and chefs and producers and then city officials coming together to say, we can make this happen. And it really is almost this great American beer festival in in scale and in opportunity that we could reinvent and bring to Denver and all the great things that obviously did for our our city. Yeah. Richard, why did Slow Food Nations land here? We are really inspired by the kind of collaborative, big sky um, 
environment and action that we see here. The leadership in food, and in particular, Krista Roberts, uh, director of Slow Food Denver, who has steered so much extraordinary work around school gardens, as well as with chefs. Um, We think it's time for the flyover middle part of the country to tell the coasts that they haven't got everything figured out. There's something happening here that others need to see. And the 500 delegates who are flying in from 20 countries are going to get to see what Denver is doing to transform the sense of identity and opportunity through food. Where do you think they have to go when they're in town, Adam Schlegel? And you can't say snooze. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't say snooze. And as an Eat Denver (laughs) guy, I can't pull out any individual place. So that's that's a a biased question beyond... um, Certainly going to this Union Station Farmer's Market this weekend, I think, is is an imperative to do it. I think with Union Station and all the restaurants, all of them. Which are spendy. They're spendy. What are? The restaurants at Union Station. There are some spendy components. That's without question. I think we all owe it to ourselves. And that's what this weekend is about, to help figure out how we bridge that gap of of price equanimity. But there also is this concept, and it's well-founded in Italy and many places, that 15% 15% of your income sometimes is, is spent on food. And in America, it's often known about 6 or 7%. Huh. And so we as a society, it, we do need to have this discussion of how we value food and, and what it brings to us. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure. You heard there Adam Schlegel, co-founder of Snooze AM Eatery. And with Eat Denver, it's a collective that helped bring Slow Food Nations, this festival, to Colorado. Richard McCarthy leads Slow Food USA. Indeed, the conference takes place this weekend in Denver. Of the food the U.S. produces every year, more than a third ends up in the trash. A new startup in Colorado is working to change that by finding a market for all that wasted grub. Reporter Noel Black begins his story in Colorado Springs at a dumpster. Yeah, there we go. So I'm going to hop in. This is Dan Lewis. He's the president of a new Colorado Springs startup food company called Food Maven. Now 26, Lewis and some of his friends spent the summer after college in 2014 salvaging food like this from dumpsters. Looks like we got some broccoli and apples, some good-looking peppers, a lot of leafy greens that we might not be able to use, but could definitely make a good stir-fry. Lewis fills up a brown paper grocery sack. He estimates that a bag of produce like this would cost up to $50. It was in dumpsters like this that Lewis began to see that there was a much larger problem in the food system. This is not bad food. This didn't meet some type of cut from somebody's standard, or it's just oversupplied and ended up in this bin. This bin represents just a tiny fraction of the 133 billion tons of food that gets dumped into landfills every year. That's according to a 2014 U.S. Department of Agriculture report that finds 35 to 40 percent of all food produced in the U.S. every year gets thrown away. Truth of the matter is it's perfectly good food that's just getting lost in the system and tragically ends up as waste when it really doesn't need to be. This is Patrick Boltema, CEO of Food Maven. He and Dan Lewis started the company together two years ago while working with a nonprofit food rescue organization. They were shocked by all the waste they saw. Bultima says they realize the entire food system is designed to create that waste. The only way to always have everything all the time is to dramatically oversupply the system. Grocery stores, says Bultima, are under enormous pressure to remain fully stocked at all times. If customers don't find what they're looking for, they'll go elsewhere. 
And the only way to make sure there's always enough is to have too much. And so there's product that gets lost just because there's no place to put it, and it's, gotta, and it's in the way. Grocers and food distributors often send that food to the dump. Lewis and Baltima saw this as an opportunity. They created Food Maven as a for-profit business to distribute the oversupply of food to restaurants, school cafeterias, and other institutional kitchens at half price. As Baltima sees it, everyone wins. And so it really is for our suppliers, it's found revenue for food that they were going to lose, that they were going to pay to dispose of, and for our buyers, it's a great value. Food Maven receives the oversupply on commission. A percentage of anything sold goes back to the original producer. And their ultimate goal is to keep all of it out of the landfill. The way it works is pretty simple. When a grocery store or a distributor has an oversupply, Food Maven sends its trucks out to pick it up. They take the food back to the warehouse, inventory it, and upload the inventory to a website where restaurant owners or institutional kitchens can place their orders. Then Food Maven fills the orders and delivers them. Nina Lee owns 503 West, a restaurant in downtown Colorado Springs. She places regular orders for organic chicken breasts from Food Maven. And we use a lot of chicken breasts. And that's 503 West, like many restaurants, has limited distributors to choose from. That's why, Lee says, she welcomes the variety and prices Food Maven offers. It was by far the best deal. But not everyone's convinced that Food Maven's business model will create healthy competition in the market or address the oversupply problem. You give me something for free and let me sell it for half of its former value, I've, no one makes that kind of margin in the food business. This is Mike Calicrate, a rancher, meat processor, food distributor, and grocer in Colorado Springs. He's also an advocate for local food. And so we've got people who are sort of exploiting a problem, and, but dealing with it in an incorrect way, or maybe from their perspective in a very correct way to make all the money they possibly can for themselves. But it doesn't address the problem. Calicrate wants the food system to move toward a local model of production and distribution that puts more money into the hands of farmers and ranchers. But others, like Doug Wiley, president of the Arkansas Valley Organic Growers Co-op, are taking a wait-and-see approach to Food Maven's model. Well, I say it's a little new, too new to, to really see all the problems that might arise. Wiley says oversupply is a big problem for small ranchers and growers, too. He hopes that Food Maven might open new markets for them. The way I think of it is it's, it's another outlet that I could possibly utilize. You know, I've been just giving it away. Food Maven hopes to go national in the next five years. They'll test their model in a major market for the first time this summer when they open for business in Denver. I'm Noel Black for Colorado Public Radio News. And finally today, Fort Collins musicians Alicia Kraft and Stacy Foster met at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. They kept in touch, sent each other songs, and eventually formed the folk group Whippoorwill. They visited the CPR performance studio. Here's the track, Cold Sound.
Fort Collins band Whippoorwill with the track Cold Sound. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.